Well, a couple weeks ago, uh, my family and I, we were driving to Cleveland, Ohio uh, for Thanksgiving, where Nicole's parents were. And as we were on our way there, we, we left right after church here on Sunday, on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. We, we go, like loaded up the car, put the dog in the car, put the kid in the car, and we started driving to Cleveland, Ohio. And it is such a long drive. You spend like two and a half to three hours driving through New Hampshire and Vermont on back roads. And when you finally get on the interstate on the other side of Troy, New York, and you hop on the New York Thruway down into, you know, past Syracuse, past Rochester, past Buffalo, all the way to Cleveland. And we're, we're in the car. And because of what time we left and, um, it was dark the majority of the drive. And even when it was light, it was so overcast and gray that day. And it was raining and getting colder and colder. Salt trucks were out. And my son from the back seat goes, Dada, how much longer? And I said, well, buddy, we got about eight more hours. <laughs> but not too much longer now. And it's dark out because it's four. And, and he goes, 15 minutes go by, and he's like, Dada, how much longer to work at Grandma and Grandpa's? I said, oh, buddy, not that much longer. Will it be dark when we get there? It will, and that's partially because it's Cleveland. And so anyways, as I thought about that story, and I think about Advent, I think of this quote from Fleming Rutledge. She's an Episcopal priest who said, Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light. Advent begins in the dark and moves toward the light. Advent is a time of waiting. You know, it's really easy to want to skip forward and start singing joy to the world and hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. But Advent is a time for remembering. It's a time for waiting. It's a time where things started in the dark. Amid 400 years of silence from God, no prophets, no priests that were delivering new messages from God, 400 years of silence, people held out hope that in the darkness, God would shine a light down. And they sat in that darkness and they waited and they wandered waiting for God, being occupied by foreign armies, wondered, God, how much longer? How much longer? And he'd say, a little while now. And they held on to hope of a better day coming, that God would indeed send his Messiah. So today we are going to start in the dark, as it were, on in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have a Bible... Go ahead and grab that. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. This is probably the darkest chapter of Scripture. But we're going to discover there that even though it is dark in this portion of Scripture, that God God speaks hope into it. And that when we are hopeless, that when we are hopeless, when there seems to be no way out, that God is able. And if we are helpless and hopeless then that's the only hope that we have, that he is able. So let's read Genesis 3, 1 to 15 together. 
hear God's word. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our hope. You are our only hope, Lord. And I just pray that over the next 15 to 20 minutes that we would be filled with hope because of what you have done for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two simple points as we walk through our passage this morning. The first is the need for hope. The need for hope. The scene we're just dropped into this morning is a scene of of total darkness, right? But this wasn't always the case. This wasn't always this dark. What was going on before this was a time filled with life, filled with light, and filled with joy. Before this event, known as the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we had God speaking the world into existence out of love, creating the world, and, and making everything in it good and perfect. And in the world, God's crowning glory of his creation was people, men and women man and woman. He created Adam and Eve. And in the garden, they had a true, deep, meaningful relationship with God. They were connected to their creator in a significant way. They they didn't feel like there was any space between them and God. They knew who he was. They relied on him. They had fellowship with him. They were connected to their purpose. They knew why they were made. God made them and said, hey, I've given you everything to subdue, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth that I had made. 
They had this amazing relationship to God. There was nothing that stood between God and them. God was with them. He walked with them in the cool of the garden, as it were. He provided for them food to eat. It was perfect. They were connected to God, but they were also connected to one another. That was almost real bad. Um, They were also connected to one another. And... um, And in their connectedness to one another, there was no fragmentation in the relationship that Adam and Eve had. There were no backhanded comments. There were no um, off looks that they gave each other. There was no arguing. There was only wholeness and flourishing. They were intimate, spiritually, emotionally, and physically intimate. Nothing got in the way of their own relationship. They were whole and whole together. That's how God made it. That's how he wanted it to be. He's good, and he's loving, and he put mankind in relationship with one another so they could know each other, feel safe around each other, feel protected around one another, and around God. And so that's how God made the world, but they didn't just have great relationship with God. They didn't just have a great relationship with each other, but they also had a great relationship with the world that God had made. God gave them the garden and the world to cultivate, to fill, and it was beautiful. They were connected to their purpose. They knew what they were supposed to do in life and who they were supposed to live for. There was no wondering, am I doing the right thing or what's next for me? Or, I don't feel fulfilled in my work. They were just at one in the creation that God had made, subduing it like God wanted them to. They were connected with their purpose. Their labor itself wasn't even arduous or hard. Their grind was not a grind. It was a joy. That's the scene that God sets up in the garden. A world perfect. A world whole. It's something that we all long for now. That's why we make laws. That's why we, that's why we do certain things, because we're longing for some sort of putting that back together. We're longing for Eden, as it were. But this is the picture of life before Genesis 3 comes along. And that's when things get dark. This beautiful picture that God intended gets royally messed up. And in Genesis 3, things take a turn for the worst. And I want us to see four things here. First, I want us to see that four results of the fall, four results of man's sin, is that we are deceived. This is why we need hope. We are deceived. In the garden that God made comes a serpent. And right from the very beginning, he asked the question, goes up to Eve, and it's, the question is, did God really say? Did God really say? And the rest is history. Satan tricked Eve. Eve questioned God. Adam was standing right there. He goes along with all of it. And they're deceived. They're deceived into doing the wrong thing. And then after that, they can't see what's up or down at all. They're deceived, then they see that they're naked, then they're trying to hide themselves. They're deceived. And after the fall, we stand deceived as well. We often walk through life 
wondering what our purpose is, wondering what is what makes life meaningful. We see it all around us as people search for meanings in, in relationships, in things, and, and in whatever else. Because we are deceived. And, and from Satan's first question, did God really say, we've been asking that question uh, over and over and over again in questioning. We are deceived and we are confused. But not only are we deceived... We are victims. We are victims. We're victims of Satan's deception. God is, God is really clear about that. God, God even punishes the serpent in the text for being deceptive and for deceiving Adam and Eve and for Eve's deception of Adam and, and for Adam's kind of deception of Eve too and not serving his wife, not saying no, not protecting her from the serpent. Eve was a victim of Adam's poor love. He was a victim of the serpent's lies. Adam was a victim as well. Sin makes us victims. But we're not just victims. We're also sinners. We're also sinners. Sin is not something that just happens to us, though sin does happen to us. We sin by what we do. And we sin by what we fail to do. We sometimes say a confession here that, Lord, forgive us for the things we've done and for the things left undone. We are sinners. And in that perfect garden, things began to unravel. And the results of sin is death. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two says this, For just as in Adam all die. In Adam, all die. That is the result of sin. In Adam is one of, apart from Christ, Adam is our spiritual father. We are just like him. We sin too. And what was perfect in the garden began to unravel in the world. In all that was whole and flourishing, now was marked by fear, shame, and guilt. The dominant emotions we feel apart from God, those started back in Genesis 3. So now we live with, with fractured relationships, and we live with weak bodies, and we live in a, in a place where there's cancer, in a place where there is death, in a place where parents bury their children, in a place where... There are pandemics in a place where we are hurt by people that love us and we hurt people we love. We're in a place now where wars tear us apart and we can just look around or turn on the news and see that. This is the result of Adam's sin. Pain, pandemics, poverty, death, separations from God feeling alienated from God, feeling alienated from ourselves, feeling alienated from other people. This is the result of Adam's sin, and we carry this brokenness deep in our bones. Emotional pain, spiritual pain, and physical pain. And we see from this text that we are also helpless and hopeless on our own. We are helpless and hopeless on our own. 
Adam and Eve know that. They begin just, they realize what they've done, so they begin trying to cover up their fear, cover up their shame, cover up their guilt. And they try to, what do they do? They go to a fig tree and they start to, like, they feel something deeply wrong inside of them and they try to cover it up by, with fig leaves, which is ridiculous. Like, fig leaves isn't going to cover up the, the terrain of their heart that is now exposed before God. And they know that they are helpless and hopeless on their own. Advent begins in the dark. And this is about as dark as it gets. But it also moves towards the light. Because God did not leave his people there. God, out of love, could not leave his people helpless and hopeless. And in the middle of the darkness, we see a promise of hope. God speaks hope directly into it. He says in Genesis 3.15, so I think we have a slide for, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is known to theologians as the proto-euangelion. You're welcome. That was free. Um, you can impress your friends now. Um, the proto-euangelion, that simply means first gospel. So this is the first place that we begin to see God drip the good news of the gospel in. That God will not leave the world in its present state of decay. That he would not leave it alone. And that right in the middle of the darkest moment in the history of man, God comes with the word of hope that says, hey, Eve Someone's going to come from you, and he's going to crush that serpent's head. God would not leave people in their sin. He couldn't bear to leave people alone. He couldn't bear to leave the crowning achievement of his creation alone in their sin. He speaks a word of hope. In the middle of sin, God is there, calling people out of darkness right from the beginning and into light. And we see four ways, four ways that this is a promise of hope about the Messiah. And the first thing we see is that the Messiah will be a rescuer. God is not vindictive like we are. You know, he's not like just looking to get back at people. Sometimes we're like that, um, where we just want to get back at people. God doesn't do that here. Instead, there are consequences, real consequences for Adam and Eve's sin. There's death and decay and relational discord and so forth and so on, disconnected from the planet that God made. But God promises that someone would come to crush that serpent's head. The Messiah will be a rescuer. He will do just that. He will come and rescue his people from their present state. Colossians says this. He has rescued us 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. The Messiah is a rescuer rescuer who rescues us from darkness. He could have blasted Adam and Eve. He could have said, I'm done with you people. You just, you, you messed up the whole creation I have made. It was so good before you. You're awful. But instead he says, you know what, Eve, someone's going to actually come from you that's going to crush that serpent's head. God comes with the word of hope and he, the Messiah is going to be a rescuer who will rescue us from the darkness and transfer us into light, but the Messiah won't just rescue his people, he will restore them. We love our home restoration shows, right? Like our Chip and Joanna games, and we make pilgrimages to Waco, Texas for some reason. We go there because um, I guess you can't see a, a grain silo here. I don't know. Um, I guess not the one that's cheek or, or whatever, but. But we love restoration shows when we see houses that are dilapidated, doors falling off the hinges, and we got paint peeling off the sides of the wall. We love when someone goes in and, and just make the house shine and shine even better than the way it was before. Well, this promise we know on this side of the cross in the empty tomb was a promise that God would restore his creation back to the way it was at the beginning, the Messiah will be a restorer. And man, isn't there just something inside of us that just wants things to be right? Because we feel that things are broken and dilapidated, like the world is coming off of its hinges. Sometimes that's our personal world. Sometimes that's our relational world. Sometimes we just look around and you're like, oh, it's broken. Even like, I think it's the second law of thermodynamics, um, says everything is falling apart and we long for just something to make things right again. Someone to put it back the way it ought to be. When well, the middle of this sin, God promises a restorer and he promises that promises it to Eve. And I find this fascinating because God in saying to Eve that one was going to come from her who would crush the head of the serpent was giving her honor in the middle of her sin. He was saying, Eve, one's going to come from you. He was recognizing her and saying, this has come from you, Eve. Not going to come from just somewhere else. It comes from you. The Messiah is a restorer. He will make things right. He was giving Eve hope that someone would come to rescue them from their plight. And so we see the second half of that verse that Paul said in Corinthians, for just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. Because our God is a restorer. And so if death came through one man, so one man, so, so from one man comes life. And that is from Christ. The Messiah is a rescuer. The re- Messiah is a restorer. And the Messiah is a redeemer. He is a redeemer. A redeemer is someone who purchases in order to bring one back. This Messiah will bring us back to God. He will purchase us back for God.
We see that though Christ comes and he'll crush the head of the serpent, that the serpent will strike his heel. So how will Jesus defeat the devil and redeem us back from God? Well, through a way that would look like defeat, through a bloody cross where he would take on the sins of the world upon himself and die dead. It would look like defeat. But in three days, we know that 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 tomb, the stone rolled away and out walked the risen Christ. This Messiah would buy us back. We were helpless. We were alone. We were separated from God. We were separated and alienated from one each other, from one another. We live with hostility between us and God, enemies of God, the scripture would call us live with brokenness, and then God would send his son to buy us back. And what looked like defeat would lead to victory. And so Paul says in Ephesians, in him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We are bought and brought back to God, not because of anything we've done, not because we have we could sow fig leaves for ourselves to cover us, not because we could adequately deal with our own sin and shame and fear on our own, but because God looked in love and said, I will bring them back and I will do it through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Finally, friends, we know that this Messiah will be a ruler who defeats the enemies of God. Jesus is that hope in the darkness. The enemies of God in this text are Satan and anyone following after him. The enemies of a loving and good God are that which is unloving. God creates the world out of love, and so God chooses to defeat all that is not loving in the world and that opposes him in the way he made it. If you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus, can I plead with you that the darkness you feel inside and the darkness you see outside isn't dealt with through career advancement, through a spouse, through self-improvement. Those are all fig leaves that will lead to death. But Christ comes and he leads to life. This is what will make the world right again. Isaiah says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And in the darkness that Advent begins with, we remember that a light has dawned in Jesus Christ. Those of old lived in the darkness of Advent, before Christ's first coming. We live in the darkness of this present world, knowing that Christ is coming back. In the darkness that you feel inside your own heart, in your repeated struggles with sin, in your brokenness, in the darkness that you feel because people hurt you and because things have been done to you, the, that darkness, Jesus 
will do away with. In the darkness that you see around you, in the darkness that you have done, Christ will deal with fully and finally and do away with it for good because he is a rescuer, he is a restorer, he is a redeemer, and he is a ruler who is putting everything back the way it should be. And when you're feeling that darkness inside of you, when you're feeling that darkness around you, and you call out to God, God, how much longer? When will we be there? He'll say, not that much longer now. Advent begins in the dark. It leads to the light. And when you are hopeless, he is able. We remember Christ coming back each week through communion. These sacred symbols symbolizing the broken body and blood. And these are a picture of the coming of Jesus again. This feast we partake in now looks forward to another feast when Jesus comes back and does away with the darkness once and for all. And so we take communion each week to remember what Christ has done for us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to take communion and instead place your faith in Jesus. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you feel the brokenness inside of you and you feel the brokenness around you, come to the table and remember that one day he will do away with it for good and that he has already dealt with your present sin now. You stand right before God. You stand enabled to have a relationship with him and with others. And he's connecting you to your purpose and meaning once again. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples, took some bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray, and then there'll be people up front. You can take, come to the front when you're ready, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and head back to your seat. Let's pray.